Well, good morning. Welcome to Resurrection OC. My name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here, and uh, I'm glad that you have joined us this morning. This morning, we are starting a new series called Everything is Sacred, a series in the book of Leviticus. So uh, we're going to spend seven weeks looking at the book of Leviticus. And uh, I would like to invite you to open your Bibles, if you have one with you, to Leviticus chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible on you uh, or with you, there's a, a blue Bible at the ends of the rows where you're, uh, where you're seated, seated, and you can um, follow along with me there. I'm just going to read the first verse of Leviticus. Leviticus is the third book of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and you can find Leviticus uh, chapter 1 on page 81, if you're following with me in, uh, in one of those blue Bibles. So let me invite you to stand with me as we give our attention to God's Word this morning. Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. This is God's Word. Let's pray. God, would you be with us as we give our attention this morning and over the next several weeks to this book that is very unfamiliar to many of us, uh, that if we're perfectly honest, is very strange. Would you help us um, to see how you have made yourself known to us through this book that most of us probably know more by reputation than actual first-hand experience. Would you um, help us to be honest about what we bring to the table, our suspicions and our doubts and our preconceived ideas, uh, that we don't need to hide those, but that we can bring them to you? But would you help us to have... Um, hearts and minds and ears and eyes to see and behold all that you are communicating to us in your word. Help us to know that you speak to us in your word because you love us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. So we're starting a series on Leviticus, and uh, it's occurred to me how, how many uh, unique comments I have uh, received from friends, and actually not, not that much from people um, in, in our church, I think, but, but from friends and family members and uh, people in other parts of the country, pastor, friends of mine that I'm in communication with, and um, saying, wow, you're, you're going you're gonna to preach through Leviticus. And uh, the, the two comments that I've tended to get are, are, um, are kind of, it's funny that one thing can provoke both of these responses. Some people have said, wow, you are really brave. Um, to, take, to take on Leviticus, and other people have said, you are crazy to take on Leviticus. Um, it's funny that both of those things, you know, very contradictory responses from the same thing. One person put it to me really well this week. Uh, I, I met this guy, I'm a friend of a friend, this week, and he said, he's like, what are you trying to accomplish by um, preaching through the book of Leviticus? I thought, you know, that's a really good question. The book of Leviticus is sort of like the crazy uncle of the Bible. You know, everybody's got, it's usually an uncle, isn't it? Um, in your family, um, I know who it is in my family. I know who the generation ahead of me is in my family. I know who my generation is. It's my brother. Um, who's the crazy uncle in the family. And, and, you know, the crazy uncle is the person who, 
just doesn't do things the way everybody else does things, and you don't tend to spend as much time with them, but every once in a while, like a wedding comes along, and you gotta bring the crazy uncle out. And he says things that sort of embarrass everybody, and you just hope you can move on and get past it. And that's what the book of Leviticus is like for many Christians, I think. Um, I heard somebody say that the book of Leviticus is like a blind date gone wrong. Um, you start reading Leviticus. Uh, the book of Leviticus is where Bible reading plans often go to die. You know, at the beginning, it's like January 1st, and I'm going to read through the Bible. Some Christians do this. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm going to read through the Bible this year, and Genesis is great, and Exodus is interesting, and then the second half is kind of boring, but you got to power through it, and then you get to Leviticus. And it's like that blind date where you're, you're, you've just started the meal, and the main course hasn't even you know, been up to the table yet, and you're like, wow, do I have to finish this? <laughs> um, and often you don't. And um, maybe a few years later, you, you're saying, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make it through Leviticus this time. And then you get you know, a couple chapters in, and you're reading about uh, skin diseases, and you're going, why? Why did I do this again? Um, for some people, I think that the mere fact of the existence of Leviticus as a book in the Bible is, is an offense. Um, uh, I mean, have you ever heard something along these lines? Um, oh, so you're one of those people who believe that the Bible is true. Well, I really hope you don't have any cotton polyester blend shirts in your closet because, you know, those are forbidden uh, in Leviticus chapter 19. Or, oh, you believe, you know, you think the Bible is literally true. Well, I sure hope you don't like eating shellfish because Leviticus 9 says that uh, shellfish are unclean. Um, I came across an article the title was 11 Kinds of Bible Verses That Christians Love to Ignore. It was very encouraging. <laughs> but it suggested that if a Christian insists on taking the Bible as the Word of God and saying that it's true, that a, a great way to undermine that belief in the Bible is to simply ask that person um, to read a few awkward or embarrassing verses from the book of Leviticus. For example, oh, your pastor takes the Bible literally, does he? Well, I hope that he's had his skin inspected to make sure that none of those sores are unclean, right? I'm not going to comment on whether that's happened, right? Um, but if you understand the logic of this, that if you're going to say the Bible is true, then why are you ignoring this one book in large parts? Um, or are you ignoring it? That's the question that we're going to talk about. In other words, Leviticus has become something, I think, of an embarrassment for Christians and for people who don't consider themselves to be Christians. Um, it's maybe the reason that they would point to or that you would point to um, to justify your lack of belief. It's kind of become a lightning rod for somebody wanting to doubt or to mock the Bible. And so faced with all of that, I think that Christians increasingly have this, uh, this tendency to just sort of like ignore uh, the book of Leviticus, kind of like we want to ignore that crazy uncle. Um, you know, we know it's there, but, um, you know, maybe we think something like, surely, um, you know, something has changed. You know, we have this idea that like, well, that was, that was a long time ago. 
Maybe God mellowed out after he had a son. Um, you know, maybe, I don't know how the Old Testament thing works. Like, maybe something has changed. I hope, maybe, I don't know. Um, I don't really know what's in there, so let's just not think about it. Well, we're going to think about it together. <laughs> um, why in the world would we want to devote time together in our worship service to look at the book of Leviticus? Well, let me tell you. Almost every week, uh, I say that without exaggeration, at almost every week I get into a conversation with somebody. Maybe I'm at a coffee shop and I, uh, I, I get into a conversation with somebody I see there regularly. Maybe I'm having lunch with maybe one of you or, or somebody and, and uh, you run into a friend. And you know when I, when I get introduced to somebody new for the first time and they, they hear that I'm a pastor, I often get a response that goes something like this, oh, well, I'm a, I'm a very spiritual person. Um, you know, I don't consider myself a religious person, but I'm a spiritual person. And what I think that implies is something like, I know that there is a God. Um, I know that we live in a world that is amazing. Uh, and that is mysterious, and that is beautiful, and I believe that there is some uh, divine or spiritual presence or force at work in this world. Um, but I don't really want to talk about it with you, Pastor Guy. <laughs> and so I often find myself in a situation where somebody says to me, oh, well, I'm a very spiritual person, but I'm not, I don't consider myself religious. And I, I, you know, I, I don't really know what to say to that because um, part of it I really resonate with. And part of it, it sort of feels like an attempt to like straight arm me and, and I get it and that's fine. And so I just don't know really what to say. And, and having studied the book of Leviticus for the last couple months and weeks, um, what, what I'm now really getting to is, is, is what, I, what I want to say is that I think that the beginning to a response to that objection begins in the book of Leviticus. Um, that if I could, what I would actually say to somebody is, I would love, that's great, and I, I actually affirm a lot of what you are saying in saying I'm a spiritual person. And I would love to start reading through the book of Leviticus with you. Let me explain. I'm spiritual but not religious, I think express, expresses what many of us feel. Um, and it was expressed by a band, you, you, uh, the band Live, I don't know if you're familiar with the band Live, it, it, like there, there's probably a more contemporary example I could have come up with, but it, in the early 2000s, the band Live um, released a song called Heaven, and um, in Heaven, the lyrics say this, I don't need no one to tell me about heaven, I look at my daughter and I believe. I don't need no proof when it comes to God and truth. I can see the sunset and I perceive. And the idea that I think it's communicating is something like this, that we live in a time where, yes, there has been this like influence of what people call the new atheists, Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and others. And as a culture, most people aren't buying that. Um, it's not to say, like, those voices, they're very influential, but most of us are saying, God, I look at the mystery of life, um, you know, in my children. I look at the beauty and awe of the, of the world around me, 
And I have to say that there is some spiritual force at work in the world that we live in. We know that God is here, we just don't know how to get to him. And that, that is precisely the question that the book of Leviticus, believe it or not, is the answer to. How can we live in the presence of a God that we sense is in our midst? That is the question that is posed to us by the book of Leviticus. I'm convinced that Leviticus is the starting point to help us um, understand how to live in the presence of God. How to live in a world where we sense vaguely that there is a God, that there's a spiritual presence, but we can't quite get to him. Now, why do I say that? Well, i got to tell you a little bit of the background of the book of Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus describes events that take place about a month after the end of the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, God's people, the Israelites, they come out of slavery. They've been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And they come out of slavery in Egypt, and they come to meet God uh, at at Mount Sinai. And at Mount Sinai, it's where Moses goes up and he gets the Ten Commandments and he comes down um, and he brings them to the people. But God's presence comes down on Mount Sinai and the mountain is shaking and, uh, and there's thunder and lightning and the people are terrified and they say to Moses, do not let God come near us or he will kill us. And that's about the first half of Exodus. And then the second half of Exodus is instructions for building this tent it's called the tabernacle. And God, what God does in the tabernacle is he, he, he says that um, my presence, I'm going to make my presence known to my people in this tent, in the tabernacle. And God's people are going to camp around the tabernacle. Okay, so that's the, how the book of, Levit, or of Exodus ends. And then the book of Leviticus begins, I just read to you, saying the Lord called to Moses from the tent of meeting. And that little word from communicates a whole lot because what it's saying is that God is in the tabernacle and the, the like outer part of the tabernacle is called the tent of meeting and it was the place where God was going to meet with his people, hence the name, the tent of meeting. And God is in the tabernacle and he's speaking to Moses from the tent of meeting. God's people are not able to enter into the presence of God. That's exactly the world that we live in, where we can kind of sense the reverberations of the voice of God in the world that we live in, and yet we can't quite feel like we actually get into his presence. How can we live with an awareness of the presence of God in our lives? Okay? That's what happens in Leviticus. The next book of the Bible is the book of Numbers. And the book of Numbers, chapter 1, verse 1 says, The Lord spoke to Moses in the wilderness of Sinai in the tent of meeting. Okay, so how, does, how do God's people get into the presence of God to actually meet with him? The answer is the book of Leviticus. Amazing, isn't it? How can we live with an appreciation of God's presence in the everyday, Monday through Friday, day in, day out, normalness of our everyday lives. Maybe, um, you know, maybe you come to church on Sunday morning for an hour or so, and you leave feeling like, okay, I have an increased sense of God's presence in my life. And then, like, (laughs) 
life happens, right? Or maybe, um, you know, in brief moments before meal, uh, we pause to acknowledge the goodness of God uh, and his provision for us. And then we go about the rest of our lives. Or maybe we open up God's word in the morning or different times during the day and we sort of pause to acknowledge that God is present with us. But often it feels like uh, it's when we hit a pause, when we kind of take a break from our normal lives, that we're actually aware of God's presence. Is it possible to live the normal part, everyday part of our lives with an awareness that God is with us, that we live in his presence? Well, Leviticus says yes. Leviticus invites us to believe that the sacred is not restricted to brief moments in our normal lives. Leviticus invites us to believe that the sacred presence of God touches everything. Uh, The commands and instructions of Leviticus are jarring. Um, Leviticus is like the blood and guts of the Bible. Um, And it's eye-opening. And it's also eye-opening in how pervasive it is. One of, the, one of the things the book of Leviticus does is, is it very clearly, in its exhaustiveness, says that there is no area of life that is untouched from the reality of who God is and what he has to say about our lives. When we're at home, when we're at work, when we're alone, when we're with others, Leviticus invites us into a faith that is not just a matter of like intellectual beliefs or sort of like heart and passion, but Leviticus invites us into a faith that is embodied, uh, that is lived out in actions and behaviors and even rituals. We'll talk about that in a minute. Leviticus invites us into a faith that is not just about our private and our individual views, but about how God has made himself known in a, uh, through his word and, and how we are to live in light of him in community. What we see in Leviticus is not an archaic religion that had to be updated in the New Testament. What we see in, in Leviticus is not an angry God who softened up sometime uh, later. But what we see in Leviticus is the same gracious faith of the, that we have in the rest of the Bible. What we see in Leviticus is, is the gospel in shadows. Um, to understand Leviticus, we have to understand that Leviticus comes like a month or two after God's people have come out of 400 years of slavery. Now just think about that. For, if you're an American, your people haven't done anything for 400 years. And so think about... Um, Think about the mindset of the people of Israel when you and your parents and your grandparents and going back for 400 years, the only thing you have ever known is that you are a slave and that you exist to satisfy the people who own you. And God has brought his people out of, of, of slavery into a life of freedom. It would not be terribly helpful to give them a like a advanced super nuanced discussion of the like more esoteric truths about the, the nature and existence of God. Um, this is like the ABCs of, of the biblical faith. When they come out of slavery, what they need is the ABCs of the faith. What they need is to know that the God of the Bible is different than the gods of their oppressors. What they need to know is that the God of the Bible 
Like, it's so common for us to think, like, it, we just take it for granted. Like, God, if there's a God, he is a God of love. That was not obvious to the people of Israel, or frankly, anybody absent the influence of Christianity in the world, but that's another matter. It was not obvious to these people that they had been saved by a God who was for them, who loves them, who is gracious to them. Uh, they needed to know that God was different than the fickle gods of the Egyptians. And they needed to know that God is with his people. That there's not a God who's just good, but he's detached and he's removed. And you know what? That's what you need to know too. That God is with you, that God is good, and that he is different than the gods that oppress you. In Leviticus, we see the gospel in shadows. If you learn to read the book of Leviticus, uh, you will begin to see the shadows of the gospel that point to and are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And if you learn to read the book of Leviticus, you will begin to see the shadows of the gospel in your own life. If you be, if, do you see what I'm saying? If you, if you can understand the book of Leviticus, you're going to understand how to read the whole Bible and you're going to understand how to understand your life in light of the Bible. Leviticus is the gospel in shadows, and understanding how to see the gospel in the shadows helps us see the gospel in the, life that, in the lives that we actually live. If you'll stick around with us for the next uh, six weeks, you'll see how the most overlooked and obscure book of the Bible could actually change your life. I think that Leviticus is not a book that we need to apologize for. I actually think, I, I, I got to admit, I started this as like a dare. <laughs> like, can we actually do this? And after studying the book of Leviticus um, for several weeks, I'm convinced that this is actually the book that we need in 2017. That, that it's not like, oh, we can get through this, I promise, well, it'll be fine. It's, no, this is what we need to see in order to live by faith in 2017. Leviticus is going to show us that God is not confined to a remote corner of our lives or to a remote corner of the world, but that his influence reaches to every far-reaching corner of our lives and our world. His presence undergirds and fills every moment that we experience. And so that's all sort of um, introduction. <laughs> uh, that feels a little bit more like lecture than sermon, but what I want to do just briefly um, in the next couple minutes is give you two guideposts for understanding the book of Leviticus. Uh, two themes that we're going to have to come to terms with if we're going to begin, if we're going to understand the book of Leviticus, but also two guideposts that we're going to have to come to terms with if we're going to be able to live in light of the presence of God in all aspects of our lives. Uh, and I'm just going to warn you that, that these are two themes in the book of Leviticus, two words, really, um, that are both, I think, bad words. Not like swear words, but bad words in, in the culture that, that, that we live in. Um, but these two themes we're going to have to come, come to terms with are themes that are woven throughout the book of Leviticus. And so just as an introduction to the book, to give you a sense for... Um, how to handle the book of Leviticus over the next six weeks. I want you to see these two guideposts that we're going to um, see over and over again along the way. And so the two words are holiness and ritual. Um, so first, holiness. If you want to know the presence of God in your life, 
you're going to have to come to terms with the holiness of God as, it, as it's uh, presented to us in Leviticus and, and throughout the rest of the Bible. Uh, holiness, I know, is not a real popular concept or word uh, in the world that we live in. Um, but why do we need to understand holiness? Because, uh, well, if the question is this, why do we not experience, um, or, or why, why don't we live in the immediate presence of God? It's because God is holy. We don't live in physical, intimate presence with God because he is holy. The word holy, we think, means like really, really good, kind of uptight, and really irrelevant to most of our lives, right? We think that holiness would be about like um, doing a better job at following an exhaustive list of rules. But the word holiness literally means set apart. It means different. Um, to say that God is holy means that he is different. Um, and, and the Bible talks about God being holy, God being different than us in two ways. God is holy because uh, he is different in kind than we are. He is eternal and we are not. He is God and we are, we are mortal. Um, and we will never bridge that gap, right? God is always different in kind than we are. Uh, but he is also different than us in extent. He is, he is morally superior to us. He is good, and we are not. Um, and his intention is that we would actually grow in holiness as he works in our lives. Um, so the question is this, how can a holy God live in the midst of a people that are not holy without consuming them? Um, let me explain like this. Like, is the sun good? Yes, right? The sun is a good thing. Um, we cannot live without the sun. There's no life without the sun. So if the sun is so good, would it be good for the sun to move into our presence? Like, if, like no, right? Um, we cannot endure the immediate presence of the sun. It would consume us and we would be gone. So how can we live in the presence of a God who is holy like the sun without being consumed by him. We want to know God. We want to live in his presence. And what Leviticus makes clear is that God intensely desires to live in the presence of his people. God wants to live in the midst of his people. That's how the Bible starts. That's how the Bible ends. The, book of the, the whole Bible is about how can God live in the, middle, in the midst of his people? How can a holy God live with us without consuming us? And Leviticus is going to answer that question in exhausting detail. Um, Leviticus is going to show us that in order to remove the offense that stands between God and us, sacrifice must be made. Um, there, there is an offense, there is an, an, an objection that, that, that stands between a holy God and an unholy people. And sacrifice is going to have to be made to remove that. We're going to talk more about that next week and the week after. But Leviticus is going to go on to show us that God's hope is for his people to become holy. And that we become holy, God's people become holy, not because we learn a list of rules that we obey completely, but God's people are holy because we are the possession of a God who is holy. It is the holiness of God that makes his people holy. And because we... Um, 
we are the possession of a God who is holy. And because we dwell in the, in the midst of a God who is holy, it is appropriate for us to live in light of that reality. And there, so there are behaviors that follow from the reality of God's holiness. God's presence, um, God's presence is going to change the way that we live our lives. Holiness is a big deal in Leviticus, and it's a big deal in the life of a Christian. Um, it's gonna, it, Leviticus is going to show us that in order to enter into God's presence, sacrifice must be made. And it's going to show us that there are practices and behavior that are, that are appropriate if we live in the presence of a God who is holy. Part of what that means is that um, for, to be a Christian means that we cannot simply live, we cannot simply go with the flow. Um, to be a Christian, uh, to be unholy, I mean, the, the most simple way to say that is to say that your life is going to look different. Um, that you live, if you are a Christian, you live an alternative lifestyle. Uh, you obey and follow the rules. Uh, you, you're not holy because you obey and follow the rules. You're, you're holy because your life belongs to a God who is holy. And if you belong to a God who is holy, your life will begin to reflect that reality. Living with an increasing awareness of the presence of God in your life will look like an increase in holiness. Um, it will look like finding times to pause um, throughout the day, throughout the week, in order to... Um, I mean, one of the first steps in trying to have a greater appreciation or greater awareness of God's presence in your life, uh, one of the first steps is to simply pause and acknowledge that God is present more regularly. And what that's going to look like is holiness, right? It, it, it's going to look like you pray more. It's going to look like you read the Bible more because God speaks to you. Um, it, it, might, it might look like um, setting an alarm on your phone and just, or, you know, uh, putting a thing in your calendar that pops up every day to remind yourself. Um, check in with God. God has been present. He has been aware of me since the moment I woke I'm going to pause and acknowledge his presence in my life. Um, it means, it means living with an increased awareness of his um, presence in our lives individually, but it also means that we are going to make uh, it a priority corporately to gather in the presence of God. You know, one of the things that made Israel different from their neighbors, by their neighbors I mean every other nation, one of, the, one of the things throughout history that, um, that made God's people unique was that one day a week they, they rested from their work. One day a week they stopped to acknowledge that God is the creator of all that they have and to, to rest and to worship and to acknowledge his goodness. Um, it, it, it's interesting how, how, that, like, how the Sabbath... Um, and, and in the New Testament, the you know, Christians begin to worship on the first day of the week. Um, how the influence of Christianity in our world has actually in some ways resulted in a loss of our observing that rest. I think that was a really complicated sentence. I don't know if that made sense, but think about what has happened. It, it was not a universal norm that you got a weekend. <laughs> Um, it's only the influence of Christianity in the Western world that has brought us to a place where we now think it's our right to work five days a week and to rest 
on the weekend. And, uh, and initially that began as saying, we are going to pause from our work in order to acknowledge the goodness of the one who provides everything for us. And, and so, so initially, like, uh, Sunday, ceasing from our work and activity on a Sunday in order to worship began as a, um, as like a privilege. I mean, it is a privilege. But then culturally, it kind of morphed into a norm, like an expectation. A, this is what you do if you're a good person. If you're an upstanding person, if you don't want people to talk behind your back. Um, and then from there, it's kind of developed and evolved into this place that, that people said, well, going to, Christ, going to church does not make you a Christian. And so you have the freedom to not engage in that practice. And it's true. Going to church doesn't make you a Christian. I don't think anybody believes that now. But it is now kind of morphed into this thing where it's like an afterthought. If we can make it to church regularly, it seems like a decent idea. And what that all means is we're moving back into a time where going to church, the simple act of going to church regularly, will actually make you a holy, meaning not a better morally superior person, but a different person. It's a practice that will make you look different than other people, friends, neighbors, coworkers. But if we're gonna know God's presence in our lives, we're gonna have to come to terms with the holiness of God in Leviticus. We live in the midst of a God who is holy. He makes us holy as we live in light of the reality of his holiness, as we increasingly center our lives around the God who is holy. Um, Secondly, lastly, ritual. Holiness might not be a great word, but we can maybe see um, there's, there's some goodness in holiness. But ritual, I think, is just a bad word for us. Um, ritual, um, you know, we, we want to do everything organically. We want everything to feel authentic. Um, and I'm here to tell you that it's, it's just not always cracked up to be. Um, we have a disdain for the ritual, for the rote, for the routine. Um, or at least we think we do. But what I want you to see is that the reality in your life is that you ritualize everything that is important to you. Let me give you a couple examples. Uh, imagine we were to go to a baseball game, and we get to the stadium, we're going to go see a baseball game at the stadium, and we get to the stadium, and we get to our seats, and the first thing we do is we got to get something to eat. And so what we have to do, because we're in a baseball game, is we got to go and get a hamburger, right? No. Right? You, what are you going to eat at a hot... At a, I just said it. At a baseball game. you got to have a hot dog, right? Not a slice of pizza or nachos. you got to have a Dodger dog, exactly. you got to have a hot dog. Why? Because it's what you do, right? A couple weeks ago, um, I was meeting with Josh Bastian, and he texted me, and he goes, Hey, how long is this going to take? Because it's opening day for the Cubs... And I've got a pregame. Now, to be clear, Josh was not competing in this athletic event at all, right? Why does he have to pregame before watching a baseball game on TV? Because it's really important, as you know, if you know Josh, right? We ritualize everything that is important to us. Um, Another example, if you're married, you wear... I mean, you, don't, you wear a wedding ring, right? Does wearing a ring on your ring finger on your left hand make you married? Of course not, right? Um, 
But a couple last fall, some of you remember, I, uh, I had an accident I, um, uh, that resulted in me not having a wedding ring for a, a period of time. And I was getting to go, ready to go on a trip where I was going to have to be out of town. And, and it was, Ashley and I both independently said, like, it just feels weird to get on a plane and fly to the other, part, other side of the country without wearing my wedding ring. Um, you know, having that ring does not make me married. Not having the ring doesn't make me unmarried. But it's a ritual that brings meaning and tangible significance to a really, really crucially important part of my life. Um, third example, uh, I mean, we could go on and on with this, but like, it is not Christmas in the Hales family until we have watched Christmas Vacation with Chevy Chase. And, um, why? You know, is there some new information that, like, we can't celebrate Christmas properly until we've watched Christmas Vacation? No, of course. Like, I could quote every line of that movie to you right now. I, I do not gain anything new from watching it for, like, the 18th time um, in December of 2017, <laughs> or whatever it is. Um, I don't gain anything new, but it's part of the ritual of our family that that part of approaching Christmas and entering into the Christmas season is engaging in the ceremonial ritual of watching Christmas Vacation and quoting all the lines. And um, it's, it's, it's what we do. It's, it's who we are. Rituals give us tangible ways to experience and express meaning in our lives. We ritualize everything that is important. It is no doubt true that faith in God can become an empty ritual. And, and I'm sure that it, it um, maybe even goes without saying that at certain points in the history of the church, um, maybe uh, like empty ritual has been more the norm than the exception for Christianity. I don't know if it's been more the case, but I mean, certainly there are people who, who have thought that because they are engaged in a sort of ritual observance of something, that they are... Um, that they are actually worshiping God. Um, they're sort of going through the motions of faith without actually experiencing the love of God. That's possible, right? But to say that Christianity is more than ritual doesn't imply that it's not ritual. Um, Christianity certainly involves more than empty ritual. It, let me say that differently. Christianity involves more than ritual, but it doesn't involve less than ritual. Um, does that make sense? And so Leviticus is going to introduce us to the blood and guts rituals of the Bible. And I'm just going to say this, and we're going to exp explain this in more detail. Not every ritual that we are going to encounter in the book of Leviticus is still relevant for Christians. So much of the ritual of, of Leviticus is, t is showing us the all-pervasive need for a Savior, and the necessity of sacrifice that, that, that finds fulfillment in the sacrifice of Jesus. And we're gonna, again, we're going to talk more about that. But part of what it shows us is that, is that Christianity is, is a tangible religion. I'm so grateful that Christianity is not just like an intellectual religion or just an emotional religion. It's not to say it's not that. It is that. I'm glad that it is an intellectual and an emotional religion. But it is also a religion of bodies, of hands and feet and voices and ears, where there are things that we do. Um, where, 
I, I kind of said this at the beginning of the I didn't really say this, but what I was kind of getting at in, in my, the privacy of my own head is that when I'm having a hard time, I need to, when I'm struggling in life, I need to do things. Um, I rarely get myself out of like places of frustration. I'm not rarely. I never get myself out of places of frustration or hurt um, just by thinking about them. By stewing, you have to get your body up and move. And that's part of the ritual of Christianity. Um, Christianity is, is a religion of, um, that has tangible ritual. It's a religion where we, uh, we remember God's sacrifice, not just with our, we remember Jesus' sacrifice, not just in our minds, but in eating bread and in drinking wine. It's a, it's a religion where we enter, where new Christians enter the faith, not just by like filling out an application and getting a certificate, but through the waters of baptism. It's a religion where we sing. Uh, it's a religion where we speak. It's a religion where we know God in community, where we believe he cannot be known absent community. Um, we'll say more about that. Um, as we engage in these good rituals, what the rituals actually do is begin to almost uh, like establish like railroad tracks in our lives. Um, you know, I know the, the sound of like a, a rut, that I'm stuck in a rut, does not have a positive connotation. But part of the reality is that we, as we engage in rituals, they lead us in the direction of love for God. So the rituals that we engage in actually reinforce um, the, the, the thing that's at the substance of the ritual and tune our hearts to love God more fully. Observing, observing Christian rituals does not make you a Christian. Nobody thinks that. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure there's somebody who thinks that. I don't think culturally, 2017, we live in a place where, where anybody thinks that because you engage in the ritual of communion or, or like going to worship regularly, that I don't think anybody really thinks that that makes you a Christian. And yet the reality is Christians are people who do those things. Why? Because they're good and they are tangible ways to know and experience the presence of God with us. I'm so excited I'm so excited to look at the book of Leviticus together. Um, like I said, this started off as a dare. <laughs> Can we do this? And so what I, what I want to conclude with is this. I want to dare you to journey through Leviticus with us. Um, the more time I have spent in Leviticus, the more I love this crazy, weird book. Um, Leviticus is going to open our mind, open our, it's going to make our eyes pop and probably going to make your jaw drop at times. Uh, Leviticus is going to show us that every aspect of our lives is lived in the presence of God. Leviticus is going to move us beyond the vague spirituality of the world that we live in. It's going to show us that, there, uh, that there's more than just cynicism, that there are reasons for hope. Because there is a God who is a specific person who makes himself known. He's not just some vague um, spiritual force out there that we know is there, but we can't actually know. Leviticus shows us that we don't have to imagine what God is like, but he has made himself known. Ultimately, Leviticus is going to surprise us. 
It's going to surprise us because it's weird. It's going to surprise us because it's bloody. But it's going to open our eyes to um, the fact that there is no aspect of our lives or the world in which we live that exists outside of the influence of the God of the universe. It's going to open our eyes to the reality of who we really are. And having opened our eyes to the reality of who we are, Leviticus is going to satisfy us that there is a God who is sufficient. That there is a God who is sufficient to meet every need that Leviticus will uncover in our lives. So will you join me today, next Sunday, for the next six weeks? I want to invite you, I want to dare you to join me in this journey through Leviticus as we see how the most obscure and overlooked book of the Bible might actually be exactly what we need in 2017. Will you pray with me? God, thank you for this um, startling book. I know that we, um, we just read one verse and it wasn't that startling and and uh, maybe, maybe people are confused. Maybe somebody's going to go home and uh, read Leviticus and say, why, did he, why was he talking about how weird it was? Um, God, would you make us curious? Would you help us to approach your word with curiosity um, so that we might meet you? Would you help us to not be afraid of what we're going to find in Leviticus? because you are not going to uncover anything in us that you are not also going to heal in us. We thank you, I thank you for the way that Leviticus in shadows points us to the reality of Jesus in our lives. Would you meet with us? We pray in Jesus' name, amen.